So, um, if you guys have been here in the past, on the past Sundays, you know that we're walking through the series about sharing the hope that's within us, and we've walked through some of the uh, difficulties in doing that, right? So, for instance, we may not have a lot of non-Christian friends. How do we share the hope that's within us if we don't have a lot of non-Christian friends? Or, it's a scary thing to share the hope that's within us, right? So, how do you go about sharing the hope when you're afraid or your life is a mess, How do you share the hope that is within you when your life is a mess? Today we come to a different question, but one that I think is very relevant to us, uh, to the culture that we live in. And the question is, how do we share our hope that's within us in in a relativistic culture? Right? How do we share our hope in a relativistic culture? So if you don't mind, let's pray together. We'll ask for God's help and we'll see what we can come to. Father God, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, for his death, burial, and resurrection, and thank you for the power that is contained in that. Lord, thank you that it penetrates everything that our culture has to offer. Lord, that there is not anything that can withstand your power and your message. And so we pray today, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth that's contained in your word, that you would equip us as your people to go and share our hope with others. Father, be with us now. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So relativism. It's a philosophical position that says there's no ultimate truth, right? There's no objective truth. There's only subjective truth. Things are true for me, and they can be true for you or not true for you, but that doesn't change the fact that they're true for me. Here's what it sounds like. Right? I think this will be very familiar because this is the culture that we live in. That's true for you, but not for me. All truth is relative. No one has the truth. Who are you to judge? Who are you to say that your religion is right and all others are wrong? Right? Maybe all religions are right and they're all pointing in the same direction. Or why are you being intolerant of someone else's beliefs? Have we heard these before? I have. I mean, this is the world that we live in here in individualistic America, right? This is very familiar to us. And in many ways, we have to affirm the truth about relativism. We can't just throw it all the way out because there are things that are relative, right? So here's an example. Some of you may watch baseball and think this is slow, right? It takes so long between pitches, Why does the pitcher keep throwing to first base, make a pitch, and it's slow? While other people watch baseball and they see the excitement building. They see the count changing. They think about the strategy of the coach, right? And they see the game unfolding and they're mesmerized by what happens. Those are the true Cardinal fans, by the way. (laughs) And so in that way, it's exciting to them. Both people can hold that position and we can say that that is true for them, right? Relativism is true in that way. Here's another example. You may find my sermon today to be very boring. I don't know why that's funny. On the other hand, my wife, who was here for the first sermon, said it was the greatest thing she's ever heard, and she was just so excited to be my wife. It was great. Right? So both of those things can be true. We can hold those things. Here's the problem that we get into, though. The problem that we get into is when we extend that line of reasoning to everything. Where because baseball is fun for one person and boring for another, therefore morality is true for one person and not true for another. 
the relativistic position gets extended to everything so that truth goes away and it only becomes subjective. Here's two things about the philosophical position that I want to just kind of lay out. Maybe two, two arguments against it. Number one, uh, the philosophical position of relativism actually collapses on itself. Right? So those who hold to a relativistic worldview will tell you it's true for them and maybe not true for you, but that the position of relativism is true for all people. That relativism as a philosophy is true, which makes it, right, an ultimate objective truth, which of course is not relativistic at all. It collapses on itself. The great thinkers of relativism today will tell you this. If you want to hold this position, you have to suspend your logic. If you want to be a true relativist, you have to suspend your logic. Christianity, on the other hand, says engage your logic. Right? Use your logic because when you do, you are going to see the richness of God, of his word, of the truth, of your reality, of what God has done for you. Christianity engages your logic. Relativism says don't use it. This is true. The second thing that I want to say about relativism is this. I don't think anybody actually holds it. Right? I think people use relativism as a matter of convenience for them. But in reality, they don't actually hold it. The same people who will tell you that's true for me and not true for you or truth is relative are the same people who will condemn the acts of ISIS. And they will say that it is abominable and they will say that it deserves judgment and that that is a universal truth. It is universally bad, which of course is not relativism. So practically speaking, people don't hold to this view. Right? And so as Christians, we can begin to enter into that, into their lives. Where they are affirming things that are good, we can walk alongside them and affirm things that are good. And when they judge and they condemn things that are bad and evil, we can walk alongside them until the time comes where the Lord opens a door and we can say, this is exactly how the Lord sees it as well. And the reason why you think this way is because God has imprinted this on you. And that opens the door for us. Yet, what happens if you don't accept this worldview? Right? As Christians, we believe in a God. We believe in the authority of Scripture. We believe in ultimate right and wrong. Sometimes we share that with others. So what happens when we do that? If you're the kind of person who makes assertions on morality or what's good or what's bad, you're labeled at best as closed-minded. Right? And at worst, you're arrogant or hateful or a bigot. Right? The chief sin in a culture of relativism is intolerance. And as Christians, don't you feel that? You're being told you are intolerant for your views. What God has called good is now being called evil. What God has called evil is now being called good. This is the world you live in. How in the world do you share your hope in that? So that's why they called me to preach it. They said, good luck with this one. (laughs) See how you do. Um, But I think we can look back into the book of Judges. 
believe it or not, the book of Judges, I think is going to help us understand the relativistic lifestyle that was going on and how God responds to that or how God reaches people in that kind of culture. So we're going to start with Judges 21-25. Uh, I'll read that for us and then we're going to walk through uh, Judges and we're going to see if we can find a pattern. So here now the word of God, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? The book of Judges is talking about our relativistic culture today. Everybody walking around without a higher authority telling, to, to, tell, to tell them what's right or what's wrong. And the book of Judges hits it right on the head. There is no one there, no king to lead God's people. And so they do what's right in their own eyes. And that's how the book concludes because that's the theme of what's going on. And I think as we take a, a closer look at some of the passages and unfold what God's word has to say in this particular book, we're going to see how this stuff unfolds. So the book of Judges comes in a time period in the Old Testament. Moses, right, if we can recall, leads the people of God out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are given, right? He's there. He, he, he uh, makes righteous judgments for the people. He leads them. He brings them to the precipice of the promised land. And then he dies. And Joshua takes over. Joshua is anointed as the leader of the people. And he goes into the promised land and conquers the promised land. And he divides the promised land. Right? And the people have somebody to follow. And then Joshua dies. And then we reach the book of Judges. And there is no leader to take Joshua's place. And the people don't know what to do. And so they begin to act out, to sin, to commit idolatry, all kinds of of terrible things. And so I think as we look through the pattern here of what's uh, unveiled in, in Judges, we're going to see uh, something maybe familiar with our own culture today. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to start with Judges 2, 14 through 16. It'll be up on the screen as well. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them, he gave Israel over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. They're convinced of it. Right? It tells us they're doing what's right in their own eyes, and yet, it's evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a, re as a result of that, they suffer greatly, and they are in great distress. And in their distress, the Lord sends someone to help deliver them. So let's go forward a little bit. Judges 3, 8 and 9. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. Say that three times fast. A king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Okay? The people do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, they suffer consequences as a result of that which brings pain and misery and distress and they cry out 
and the Lord sends a deliverer. And they're saved. For how long? Well, at least three verses, because we go (laughs) to verse 12, same chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he turns them over to another conquering place. And verse 15, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. This is a good God. Right? He delivers them again and again and again. But let's keep going because the pattern may not be clear. Chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord turns them over, conquered. Verse 3, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And then verse 4, Deborah comes. And if you remember our sermon series on women in the Bible, Deborah is in fact a woman. And in fact leads Israel to victory and is called a prophetess. Which is kind of amazing. Right? We turn forward in our Bible a little bit and we come to chapter 5. Chapter 5, God has delivered the people through the hands of Deborah and Barak. And they have this beautiful song slash poem of praise for God. Thanking him for all that he has done. And it's not a short song. If we sang it in here, you guys would be like, this is way too long. Right? And so they sing this beautiful song and then you come to chapter 6. The very next chapter and you think, yes, we're on the right track. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Not going well. I could continue to go through the book of Judges and show you pattern after pattern, and probably you're thinking, please do not do that. (laughs) So, I will not do that, but I think that the pattern that we see here is clear. People who do what's right in their own eyes are going to suffer the consequences of it. And the consequences are misery and distress and pain. Right? And what happens in the midst of that? People cry out. People cry out. And in this case, the Old Testament people of God knew who to cry out to. And they cry out to Yahweh. And Yahweh sends a judge, Samson or Deborah or Ehud, to deliver the people. And they are delivered. And the book concludes with where we started. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There is a deep longing from the author, from the people, for God to send someone to lead them. Please, show us what is right. Show us what is wrong, so that we can follow and do that. I have a friend I grew up with, um, who for many years struggled with alcohol. And if any of you are familiar with uh, alcoholism or maybe any sort of addiction issue, it goes something like this. It starts off as fun, it progresses. Uh, My friend would have a drink, which would turn into many, many more. He would end up doing regrettable and shameful things, and he would wake up and he would say, never again. And he would make promises to himself, and he meant them. I will not do that anymore. But a week would pass or two or ten and eventually he would drink again and the same pattern would go over and over again. One particular occasion he came home from drinking too much and his wife began to record him. And so he's yelling obscenities at his wife and saying things which um, 
you know, I know he deeply regrets. And he grabs the phone and he throws it down and he breaks it and he continues to yell at his wife and he looks over and his five-year-old son is staring at him. That broke him. That story and another brought my friend to his knees. And he cried out. And because his wife loved the Lord, and because he had a pastor who was around him, my friend knew who to cry out to. And he cried out to Jesus. And I sat before my friend not too long ago, and he was a completely different person. Not only was he not drinking, but he had been saved. And his life was totally new. And isn't this exactly what happened in the book of Judges? Aren't the people trying to beat a particular thing that only God can beat? Aren't they trying to do things and what's right in their own eyes, which results in brokenness and misery and distress and stress? And it brings them to their knees and they cry out to their covenant God, Yahweh, and they say, save us. And God does. And my friend experienced the pain and misery that sin brings on one's life. And he cried out to Jesus. And Jesus came and saved him. And isn't this true for you? Haven't you experienced this? Haven't the times in your life where you've grown the most, where you felt the presence of God the most clearly, where you have been changed and sanctified, are the times where you experience the brokenness that this world has to offer, either yours or other people's. God uses this. The world wants to tell you God can't exist because of pain and suffering. All the while, God is using pain and suffering to point people back to himself. Right? So what does this have to do with sharing our hope? What does this have to do with sharing our hope that is within us to the world? Here's the point. No one leaves this world unscathed. Everybody is going to experience this. Everybody will be brought to their knees. And we need to be the kind of people who are there at that time. You see, we have to have the long view of evangelism. We have to have the long view of sharing our hope with people. It is not something that happens instantaneously. It does from time to time. But what happens is when you love people well, who hold to a relativistic view, when you are in their lives, the times where they are brought to their knees, God will use you to speak your hope into their life, and the hope that you have is exactly what they need. There is no answer that will suffice other than the gospel, other than the hope that is within you during those moments. And here's the news that's even better. The hope that you're pointing them to is not Deborah. The hope that you're pointing them to is not Ehud. The hope that you're pointing them to is not Samson, some judge who's going to give them a militaristic victory and then die and go away. The hope that you're pointing them to is Jesus Christ, the king who's going to give them a new heart, a new spirit, a new life, eternity with him. The hope that you are pointing them to is so much better. It is exactly what they need. That is what you have to offer. That is how you pierce relativism is you love the people until God provides an opportunity for you to share your hope with them. Jesus is someone that relativism cannot stop. 
But it's not just the pain of people that goes against relativism. So I want us to keep looking and see what we come up with here as we move to the New Testament. So we're going to look at John 18, 37 through uh, 38. So two verses, John 18, 37 and 38. Going to be up on the screen. Um, And here we have, uh, Jesus has been turned over by the Jewish authorities to the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities have the power to put him to death, and so they turn him over to this particular person, Pontius Pilate, and they say, we want this guy dead. And so Pontius Pilate is given the task of investigating the claims against Jesus to make a determination what kind of punishment Jesus deserves. And he walks, Jesus walks in and he's confronted by Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate begins to ask him questions about who Jesus is, who's turned you over, do you claim to be a king? And this is the tail end of their conversation. Jesus is being investigated by Pontius Pilate and here's the end of their conversation. I want to see as we go through this, if this isn't familiar to you all as well. So listen to the end of their conversation. John 18, 37 through 38, the word of God. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. To do what? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So this is a little bit more recent than Judges. Right? It's about 2,000 years ago. Isn't Pilate's response the exact one you hear today? Pilate doesn't even engage in the claims of Jesus. He doesn't even get to that point. Pilate stops at, what is truth? What are we talking about? And don't lose sight of the fact either that Pontius Pilate is there to determine what is true about Jesus, right? He's the judge in this matter to determine what's true about what's going on here. And the same one who is there given the task to figure out what's true is the same one who is saying, but what is truth? So how did Jesus respond to this, right? So let's look at what our Savior does. So to begin with, Pontius Pilate has begun to ask him questions and Jesus responds by telling him the truth. He engages Pontius Pilate by saying, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. right? And for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. He's not beating around the bush. He is not trying to hide what is true in this particular scenario. Jesus is giving the truth to Pilate. And as Christians, we can too. Right? Yet... Like many of the people we encounter today, those we love and those we so desperately desire to know Jesus and and have the gospel in their hearts respond. Uh, He responds just like we hear them, them, hear them respond. He says, what is truth? He argues about the existence of truth. Pilate asks that question, which ends the particular discussion. What is truth? And then he leaves. And Jesus has no chance to respond. And so we're thinking, boy, how I really wish Jesus, Jesus would have answered that question. But I think he did. And there's two ways. Number one, Jesus has told Pilate 
that he bears witness to the truth. John 1 tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth and the source of grace and truth to people. In John 5, John the Baptist bears witness to the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. So while the truth is teaching and the truth is words and the truth is God's word here, the truth is also Jesus Christ himself. Standing before Pilate was the truth. And it required no other words. Jesus responded to him. So, to know the truth is not just to know book knowledge. To know the truth is not to have everything memorized. To know the truth is to know a person. To know the truth is to know Jesus Christ. And further... Not only was the truth himself standing before Pilate, but Jesus Christ answered this with action. Jesus Christ is presented with the question, what is truth? And Pontius Pilate walks out the door. In fact, as you walk back in the Gospel of John, you see John leading up to this moment in many ways where the issue of truth, what is true, is is unfolded all throughout the Gospel. And we get to John 18, and you have this question, what is truth? And from this moment, Jesus goes to the cross. Right? He answers the question by going to the cross. It's at the cross that we see the clearest expression of, cross, of, of truth that God pr- could provide. We see the justice of God. We see the judgment of God. We see the wrath of God. But we also see the mercy of God. We see the love that God has for his people, for you. The lengths at which he would go so that you could be his Right? And the answer that Jesus gave by going to the cross may not have saved Pontius Pilate. It may not have convinced him of the existence of truth or broken his relativistic worldview. But the answer that Jesus gave by going to the cross, it broke your relativistic worldview. His answer of going to the cross was enough to convince you. The cross was more convincing than anything you had believed before. The answer that Jesus gave to the question, what is truth, was the exact response that you needed to be saved. His going to the cross was the answer that saved you. And because he saved you, there is now a hope within you. The hope within you is that all of your sins have been forgiven. The hope that is within you is that all things will be restored. Everything that has been broken will be made new. That you will stand in the presence of God. That you will glorify him face to face. That is the hope that is within you. Right? And this hope that you have within you is more convincing, more powerful, more reliable than any relativistic worldview. It can penetrate the thickest walls. It can break down the hardest hearts. It can convince the most unconvincible mind. Right? The hope that is within you can pierce even the most depraved, convinced mind that this world has to offer. The hope that is within you is the gospel of God. The hope that is within you is the power of God. You have been given what you need so that you can share your hope with others and so that they can be saved. So let us be people who have hope and the hope that is within us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for 
the good news that you provide us. Thank you for how wonderful your gospel is, how transforming it is. Thank you, God, that you engage our minds and our bodies and our spirits. Lord, that you are with us here now, that you have graced us with your presence, that you have given us your truth here today. Father God, I pray that people would leave here convinced that the hope that is within them is sufficient for the task you have given them. Father, help us to rely on you in this. Give us opportunities to share this hope with others and be present with us as we do it. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.